0: Hello and welcome to this latest episode of our podcast series on The Evidence Space. Today, focusing on the benefits and challenges associated with real-world versus randomised controlled trial data. I'm your host, Ilana Landau, the editor of The Evidence Space, and today I am very excited to be joined by Michael Moran, the Director of Global Medical Affairs in Immuno-Oncology at Pfizer in Berlin, Germany. As we discuss, how real-world data measure up against data obtained from traditional clinical trials. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me, Alana. it's a pleasure.
0: Excellent, well, Michael, for our audience, could you please kick off by introducing yourself a little bit more, telling us about your current position and research interests?
1: Sure, Um, so I work, as you say, at Pfizer Berlin um, in the German medical team, so I'm in the medical affairs division of Pfizer. Um, working on innovative medicines in oncology across multiple therapy areas. Um, Prior to my role in Berlin, I worked in Pfizer-UK, and prior to that, I was a clinical academic uh, surgeon in the NHS, uh, working in London uh, with a focus on head and neck oncology. So I'm a doctor by training, but with a research interest in molecular pathology and molecular epidemiology, which I think was probably the springboard for my interest then in real-world evidence.
0: Brilliant, thank you. So Michael, you've recently published some research concerning the use of both randomised control trial and real world data to aid in clinical decision making in metastatic renal cell carcinoma. So could you please tell us a bit about what prompted you to conduct this research?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I think this came genuinely from uh, curiosity from my point of view and also then an appreciation of the fact that there was a data gap uh, in, in terms of the actual value of real-world evidence and how people interpret that or how people uh, evaluate the, the validity of it, I guess, as a methodology. Um, and to go back to then my pre-Pfizer background, I guess, I was working uh, on registry studies and for my PhD built up a head and neck registry, which was a labor of love over the course of maybe three to four years, um, working you know fully in the academic sector. And that's the sort of thing w- that's happening all over the clinical landscape. And then when you come to Pfizer and you realize actually the regulatory decisions, the reimbursement decisions are really made in quite hard and fast endpoints um, from randomized controlled trials. It made me sort of think, well, I wonder what the value is of these multiple registry studies, non-interventional studies, you know, retrospective reviews and things that are happening, because in my head, it seemed that they were also uh, valid sources of evidence. So there was a genuine question there uh, in terms of the validity of the methodology. Um, And I think it's really important as well, and this is something I've taken with me as well, that we learn from patients, and this is something that patients are also keen on themselves. uh, Something that became clear to me from working with biobanks, that patients who um, suffer from conditions like cancer, most will genuinely have a willingness to share their data in a compliant and legally appropriate way, of course, um, so that other patients can experience something better in the future. And this is where I think real world comes in, in the sense that it's, it's kind of almost our duty as people who are aware of the methodology and have ability to analyze this data, that we actually learn as much as possible from the information that's already out there. Um, so that was really the foundation for it. And then in Pfizer, I guess there's you know the exposure to loads of different you know, clinical experts and methodological experts as well. And that's how we built up this trial because we worked really closely with our colleagues in the pharmacometrics division who provided the statistical background that I could never have done on my own. Um, And I think it was really good synergy then of my clinical background, the clinical data gap, and then the subject area expertise that existed within the company.
0: Absolutely. So you mentioned just then um, some really important things like patient input and clinical trial endpoints. Could you give a sort of overview and briefly describe the benefits and challenges each associated with randomized control trial data and real world data?
1: Sure. I mean, the gold standard is still considered to be randomized control trials, and certainly the public, the paper that we've published uh, in Future Oncology is not trying to replace anything. It's more trying to add to that evidence base. Um. But what we would perceive to be the sort of traditional conditions of a randomized control trial are that the patient population are highly selected, um, and therefore they're not necessarily representative of the general population. Now, there's obviously really good reasons why they are a highly selected population, because what you really want to drill down to is a direct comparison between often two arms of, or two different therapies, um, and therefore it's important that the, the comparator groups are comparable. So that, that goes without saying. That's one of the benefits of RCTs, but if you think then about how that applies to the real world, what you can end up with after um, the publish data from an RCT is that maybe a clinician in practice has a patient who has some particular comorbidity or is of a certain age or performance status that didn't meet the inclusion criteria for the trial and what you end up with there is gaps in terms of um, do you then decide that the randomized controlled trial data is applicable to the whole population regardless of age, performance status or whatever else it might be Um, or do you just say well I can't make this clinical decision because I don't have evidence here. That's the gap, I think, that real-world data can fill because what you've got in real-world data is more of an all-comers approach um, whereby you're not necessarily selecting the patients for inclusion. They're just being included by virtue of the fact that they're suitable for the therapy and data is being recorded on that basis. The side sort of story with real-world data then would be that this is a really heterogeneous patient group and so this won't be as clean necessarily a population for analysis that you would get with RCTs, um, but nonetheless, I feel it's a really important um, group that we shouldn't ignore, and the, the, the specific focus of the publication then in Future Oncology was to really see, well, look, how scientifically valid is this, or how do these groups compare? Is, is it that real-world data is, like, way out in left field, and randomised controlled trial are telling a very different story, or actually is it the case, which is what we find, that they're pretty similar in spite of their differences?
0: Absolutely. So in your uh, recent paper in future oncology, then, when you compared the, the sort of effectiveness and outcomes of the randomized control trial and real world data, how did you define appropriateness of study inclusion in your investigation? And what, if any, limitations could these criteria impose on the results of your study?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, this was something we, again, discussed a lot internally. So not only with the pharmacometricians who conducted the analysis, but also with um, biostatisticians, um, because it was kind of, in a sense, uncharted territory. Um, and so we have just decided that we wanted to be as robust as possible. So the, the, the starting point for that was to do a really robust meta-analysis in itself, in its own methodology. Um, and the paper will show you that we had a really clear, you know, PCOS um, rationale and then our PRISMA um, adherence to make the meta-analysis itself robust and that was really key for us. Um, we looked at peer-reviewed literature so we didn't do a search of say grey literature areas such as conference abstracts, um, you know, poster presentations that may not have been published. We stuck to published uh, pub- publications in the English language um, and then the other thing that we did was we tried a really wide catchment in terms of time. So the search was conducted in two thousand and eighteen, and we, um, you know, used the search period from the year two thousand up until two thousand and seventeen to make sure that we really did capture all relevant papers um, to reflect the first-line treatment with tyrosine kinase inhibitors for uh, metastatic renal cell carcinoma. And then the one thing that we kind of early decided was how big a study was enough and so what we decided was we wanted the study arms of at least 50 patients um, because we wanted them to be of a significant size and that was kind of an arbitrary cut off um, but what we wanted was to have kind of fairly large populations so that we could draw some conclusions from them as opposed to very small maybe um, single centre audits where you may only have 20 to 30 patients so essentially we um, tried to stay as robust as possible in terms of setting out our PCOS and PRISMA guidelines and then the other thing that we did was we focused on uh, quite tight outcomes so we just looked at uh, progression-free survival, overall survival and overall response rate because we felt that these were probably going to be the most commonly featured outcomes in these sorts of papers um, so what we don't have is probably more enriching data such as um, you know patient report outcomes, quality of life, other more detailed information on uh, tolerability of the medicines uh, and things like that. So we, we basically kept the methodology as tight as possible to try and make sure that the results that we got then would be as reliable as possible.
0: Absolutely. So from the experience that you had then in conducting that, what were some of the main challenges that you came across with the real-world studies and conducting uh, real-world investigations? Did you find that there was a lot of missing data, etc.?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the, the key thing is, I think, the heterogeneity of the studies and the fact that, you know, with real world, you um, are not going to have uh, as neat, as neatly collated or curated um, data sets. Um, but I think that kind of points also to the importance of understanding how we work with those data sets, because we don't want to have a situation whereby, you know, there could be a slightly, you know, less than perfect database, data registry, whatever, in you know, and a hospital or a network of hospitals that we just decide to then ignore. So I think it's important that we learn how we cope with imperfect data. So that was also important learning, but it's certainly a limitation. Um, The other thing with real world, what you'll have is the patients aren't following a trial protocol. So there is some deviation then as well from... From treatment, So what you can have is um, patients may have a treatment break and this is something that, uh, you know, in first line uh, metastatic renal cell carcinoma sometimes can happen for the right reasons in the sense that, you know, the patient may be doing well on therapy with good control of disease and their uh, clinician may decide to pause the therapy for a while. And, and wait for progression to then rechallenge challenge with the tyrosine kinase inhibitor. Um, or you could have the same thing whereby the patient breaks their therapy because of maybe a tolerability problem. Um, and, and a real-world study won't necessarily pick up the difference between those things. It'll just simply track the fact that the patient took a break. Um, the other thing that we don't really have data on often with real-world is dose adjustments, whereas in a clinical trial, you might have quite specific guidelines in terms of dose uh, reduction in the case of poor tolerability or in some cases dose escalation, um, if that can be tolerated and is thought to be efficacious. Um, Whereas in the real world, you'll have all sorts of um, maybe deviations from that that are patient oriented clinical decisions. There's nothing wrong with them, but it just kind of deviates then from a very strict protocol-based RCT style. Um, And the other thing that you would say about real world uh, can often depend on where this study was conducted. So, you know, a lot of, you know, say, for example, the, the conclusions that you might draw in terms of treatment regimes and things might uh, differ from country to country. The key bottom line, I think, is that in spite of all that, what we found was that there was no statistical significant difference between progression v survival, overall survival and ORR. So in spite of the heterogeneity, um, we had some really important learnings that I think do translate really well into the clinical landscape.
0: Absolutely. So just going off that then, in terms of the bigger picture of the implications of your study, how do you hope people will respond and different stakeholders? What are the key uh, implications of your study?
1: So I think, I mean, a key thing we mentioned this before is patients um, understanding how valuable their information is. And this is something that's a hotly discuss topic in terms of, you know, data protection and data privacy. And it's absolutely about most important that that is always preserved and that patients have, you know, control over what data is shared. I mean, that's, you know, n- you know, in my opinion, not up for discussion. But what it can kind of build towards is it shows patients how relevant what they would see is maybe their day-to-day data, their kind of normal, their clinical notes, their electronic patient records and things like that. It shows how valuable that can be for other patients because once you group people together and gather this data, there are some quite significant learnings that can be made about, you know, efficacy, also about, you know, tolerability, and really just to help us learn more about a diseases and b the treatments that we prescribe for them. Um, so I think for patients, it's really pointed, really important that you know they can understand how much uh, value their own information can provide for others. Um, Then from a clinician's point of view, uh, you know, having worked uh, as a clinician for many years, you're often doing audit projects and, and, uh, you know, retrospective collections and analyses. And I think it just emphasizes that these are really important studies and that they shouldn't necessarily be sort of kept at institutional level and it hopefully will encourage people to work across institutions and in research collaboratives to maybe share um, things, which in the UK surgical landscape for example, there's a real drive towards collaboration which I think is fantastic. Um, So I think it kind of emphasizes to clinicians that this data is valuable and we can learn a lot from it. And I guess if we then take it on to the next level, um, the question is what does it mean for regulators? Um, and so I know that the FDA, for example, have, you know, published guidelines on the, the evaluation of real world evidence and they have actually made approvals based on real world evidence, which is completely new landscape for us. But um, I think it's, it's nice that we can sort of provide um, data to support that sort of move in that direction um, because it is increasingly hard. To make population level decisions when maybe the clinical trial population only focuses on a specific subset of people um, so it's a really big interest to the regulators and then i guess the industry interest is behind that as well in terms of um learning what studies we should be doing about our products or our medicines during their whole life cycle
0: absolutely so as my sort of final question to you now where do you go from here? Do you have future studies planned, for example, for investigating the use of real-world data studies in other indications?
1: Yes, yeah, so, I mean, I think, I mean, the world's our oyster. I think I mean, you could do this across multiple therapy types. You could You could essentially argue that, you know, that you would need to do it in every specific indication to demonstrate it's value. I mean, I think the study that we have has demonstrated that enough. And then what we've done as a sort of a sub-study from that is looked at one tyrosine kinase, kinase inhibitor inhibitor in particular and um, so we're, we're still sort of learning about how to refine it but I think I am sufficiently convinced that our direction of travel should be more into the realm of real world studies in general as opposed to questioning its validity and um, of course it would be worthwhile looking into that in other therapy areas and it's something I'll consider for, for future work but what we're kind of moving more into now is supporting registry studies Um, as a company and then also you know running our own non-interventional studies across different therapeutic indications and then something that we're really keen to get into is maybe looking at more low interventional studies which again are going to be broader patient recruitment so not really just focusing on the the patients that meet the clinical trial criteria but with the low intervention what we mean is maybe looking at some digital add-ons such as app-based services therapy management things like that whereby um, we can start to track uh, small interventions using real world evidence as the context um, to really kind of enhance our knowledge of the wider uh, situation around cancer treatment. So it's it's not just as simple of taking a tablet and making um, you know, the tumour shrink in the best case scenario or, or go away. It's more that we want to know what is that experience like. So we do want to start tracking things like quality of life, patient report outcomes, and I think... Rather than focusing down on the, the methodology, I think what are, it's our role and rash, rationale now is to try and move out and, and move forward into sort of more innovative projects. And, for example, one of the things that is involved in the haematology landscape is the European um, Partnership for Health, which is the IMI initiative, and it's called Harmony, which is a real-world evidence collaboration across multiple countries and with support from many pharmaceutical companies. Um, So it's it's looking at what small projects can we run, which partners can we work with uh, in terms of clinical academia and then which partners can we work with uh, in a sort of more international context and really trying to embrace real world evidence and use it as best as we can.
0: Excellent. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us today on this podcast episode and sharing your insights on this really important and evolving topic.
1: Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you. And to our audience, thank you for listening. And remember that you can find a whole host of resources on real world data, their benefits, challenges, applications, and more on the evidence base at www.evidencebaseonline.com.